Welcome back to the Yellow Box Podcast. This week, we are joined by Yellow Box teaching pastor, Ian Simpkins, as we begin our series called In the Beginning. For more information, please visit us at www.communitychristian.org. And remember, you can always find us on Sundays at the Yellow Box at 9.30 a.m., 11.15 a.m., and 5 p.m. We hope to see you there. Good morning, everyone. My name is Ian. I'm so thrilled to be with you this morning. Do you like what we've done with the place? Perhaps some of you have noticed a few extra speakers on the stage, and that's because 40 seconds before our first service, we had an entire system shut down. We didn't get started until about 9.45. We plugged in some speakers, put a microphone right here in the middle of the stage, and we gathered, and we sang, and we wept, and we worshipped, and it was beautiful. And that really reminds me of two things. One... um, We have an enemy that wants nothing more than to distract us, to break us apart, but our God is greater and grander than any scheme of the enemy, and God does not need our stuff. But two, it seems clear to me that that should perhaps be our posture this morning. I speculate that there's not a person in this room who hasn't, at least at some level, felt the weight and gravity of this week. And so rather than ignore it or blow past it, or even in this moment to try to fix it, we want to pause and sit in it, to to grieve together. So today, we grieve with the family and friends of Alton Sterling and Philando Castile, two more names on a list that has got to stop growing. They were men created in the image of God whose lives mattered. Today, we grieve with the family and friends of Lauren A. Renz, Michael Kroll, Patrick Zamaripa, Michael Smith, Brent Thompson, who were killed in Dallas while carrying out their sworn duty to protect others. These men were created in the image of God, and their lives matter. And for the thousands upon thousands of names that we don't know, These are people created in the image of God, and their lives matter. So today we look to God in our confusion, in our rage, in our sorrow, in our fear, and even in our doubt. We want our hearts to break for the things that break God's heart. As we read... In 2 Chronicles 7.14, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, I will forgive their sin, and I will heal their land. Our land is in desperate need of healing, is it not? So I want to invite you to do something right now if you're able, something that we don't often do here, and it might be a bit strange, but I want to invite every person that can to get out of their seats and to kneel where you're at with me. As we pray, as we grieve, as we lament, 
As we humble our hearts and look to the God who can heal and restore all things. Would you pray with me? Father, today we come to you feeling a bit hopeless and a bit helpless. In your mercy, comfort those who are grieving. Bring peace to those who are afraid. Bring strength to those who feel weak. Lord, we open our own hearts to you, confessing our sin, our anger, our apathy. We lay before you our pain, the pain of our nation and the pain of our world. May we find the wisdom necessary to align our passions with yours to navigate these brutal waters. May we be agents of your justice in every crack and crevice of our lives. Father, we, we need new songs whispered into our ears, new rhythms to pound in our chest so that we may join in the chorus of new life. Heal us, Lord. Lead us in a new way. And in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. I don't think it's any coincidence that we're beginning the series today that we are. We're calling the series In the Beginning, and what we're going to talk about for the next few weeks is God's dream for the world, but, but not just that. We want to talk about God's dream and what happened to that dream and how you and I can be a part of restoring that dream. But to do that, to understand this dream, though, we have to go back back to the beginning. Let me tell you a story. The first story my father told me and the first story that I told each of you. In the beginning, there was nothing. Nothing but the silence of an infinite darkness. It was light and air and water and soil 
clean and unspoiled. Your plants and fish, the fowl and beast, each after their own kind, all part of the greater whole, all in their place, and always in balance. It was paradise, the jewel in the creator's palm. And the creator made man, by his side woman, father and mother of us all. He gave them a choice. Follow the temptation of darkness, or hold on to the blessing of light. But they ate from the forbidden fruit. Their innocence was extinguished. And so for the ten generations since Adam's sin has walked within us. Brother against brother. Nation against nation. Man against creation. We murdered each other. We broke the world. We did this. Man did this. Everything that was beautiful. Everything that was good. We shattered. And so we sit in that gravity this morning more intensely than perhaps we normally would. But I want to go back to the very beginning of the story. Because how you begin the story will inescapably shape the story you're telling. So we're going to go all the way back. Back to a book at the beginning of the Bible called Genesis. Now there's, there's been a lot of debate, a lot of discussion with these next coming verses to talk about how God created the world. But what I want to talk about this morning is why. Why would God create? Why did he speak the world into existence? And so I want to I tell this story as if it were an actual story together. And so we begin in chapter one. Chapter one in our story centers on the very next word after in the beginning. Our text says, in the beginning what? As if to declare, make no mistake who this story is ultimately about. Before there was anything, before there was earth or galaxies, there was God. He existed and will always exist forevermore. So who is this God? This is an enormous question that writers and poets and theologians have wrestled with for centuries, but I think it's an important question for us to ask because there is no right understanding of ourselves until we understand ourselves in light of who God is. This story begins not with you and I, but with God, so we begin there. So let's approach this with humility and curiosity to see just how God reveals himself. In verse 1, it says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In this first verse, we see God as the grand designer, the father of all creation. And then it goes on, The earth was formless and empty, and darkness covered the deep waters, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the water. Verse 2, we see the Spirit hovering over formless earth. And then in verse 3, God said, Let there be light. We see everything coming into existence as a response to God's words. So we see Father, Spirit, Word. Now this language may be 
familiar to some of you and perhaps confusing for others, but it's similar to the opening lines of a book that one of Jesus' close friends named John wrote. In John 1.1, he says, in the beginning, the word already existed. The word was with God and the word was God. So who is this word that John describes? It's Jesus. It's Jesus. The world is literally coming into existence and Jesus is this driving dynamic force creating all that we know. So in the beginning we have God as Father, Spirit, and Son. And what do we see right away? We see that God is deeply relational. He's deeply communal. When you have that tug to know and be known, to find real, authentic, deep relationship, that's because you were created in the image and likeness of this God, a community of three persons. And we call this word Trinity, triunity. Now, this is a difficult concept to grasp. In fact, Augustine spent like 19 years trying to study it. And he said this, if you deny the Trinity, you lose your soul. And if you try to explain it, you lose your mind. (laughs) It's a difficult, rich word. But John goes on to describe this relationship between Father, Son, and Spirit. And he uses this word, glory. Now that may seem like a strange word for us, but to glorify means to praise, enjoy, and direct attention to. But most importantly, it means this. It means to delight in. It means that from the beginning of time and even before that, there existed this triune God with this constant cycle of energy and sacrifice and love yielding one to the other. Even before the beginning, Father, Son, and Spirit have been glorifying each other. They have this beautifully selfless relationship. And here's why that matters. The story is about a God And the God who has a dream for the world. And this God is relational to the core. And I I would argue that anything other than a Trinitarian God is not worth worshiping. Some have said that God created people because he was lonely. But that would imply that God had some sort of lack until we came into the picture. Only in three in oneness do we see a God who exists in selfless, sacrificial love before anything else Ever was. This is why we long for community, for connection. And in the Trinity, we see this dynamic sort of dance of love and joy and harmony. And some of the earliest Christ followers, they had a, a word for this dance. And the word is perichoresos. Let me hear you say perichoresos. Perichoresos simply means this, to dance or flow around one another. It's where we get this word for choreography. Now I realize that um, some of you don't dance and some of you shouldn't dance. We've seen you. (laughs) But from the very beginning of this story, I see this beautiful triune relationship, loving community, the very beginning of the story. And this is why I think John went on to say in 1 John 4 that God is love. Now notice he doesn't say God is loving, or God likes to love, or God knows a thing or two about love. It says God, what? Is love. So for our purposes this morning, we could say it this way. For God, love is not only a verb he does, it is the noun he is. And this is why that's significant. 
Because we cannot know love unless we know the source of love. There is no fullness of the experience of love apart from God himself. And in the Trinity, we have love and personal relationship intrinsic to his very being. So that's chapter one. Chapter two is that God has a dream. His dream is born out of this rich expression of love. In Genesis one, it says, in the beginning, God does what? He creates. And why does he do it? For the joy of doing it. God is an entrepreneur. He creates not out of obligation, not out of guilt, not out of rage, but out of love. There actually was a, a popular Babylonian creation myth about the time that Genesis was written. And the belief was that the world came into existence as a result of a power struggle between two gods. One god killed the other and that created the world. But we see in the Genesis account that that is not intrinsic to the world. That the world did not come into existence as a response or reaction to violence but a God who loves greater than we can even possibly begin to understand the word. This is so significant for us to understand. This is how the story begins. God creates the sky, the sun, and the stars out of love. He creates the earth, the land, and the sea out of love. He creates animals, fish, and birds out of love for the joy of doing it, which should not surprise us then that when we create, when we dream and build and cultivate, what's that thing that you do that you lose time doing? You know what I mean? That's intrinsic to who you are because you bear the image of a God who creates. We create as a part of our reflection of who God's made us to be. And then something shifts. Up until this point, God has spoken the world into existence. But then he does something incredible. He creates something that is different and set apart, something that reflects his image, his relational core. He creates a human being. And now up until this point, at the end of each day, after God has created, he's made it, he stepped back and said, that is good. That is so good. God's not bragging here. He's just saying, God, that is, that is it. And then he creates... Adam, the first human, and he sees him alone. And this is the first time that God says, that's not good. That's not good. And so God is going to solve this. What's not good is that man is alone because man needs community. And so God creates another being and calls her woman. So Eve is just made, right? And it's been a big day for her. And as we all know, first impressions count. And so God brings the woman to the man. I love that picture of God as a provider who brings her before the man. And Adam's response is, this is the bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman for she was taken out of man. And in the Hebrew, this actually rhymes. The first recorded human words in God's perfect world is a song, is poetry, is rhythm. And there was no shame, no hiding. God's dream was in perfect rhythm in the garden. And the ancient Hebrews actually had a word for this rhythm, and it's the word shalom. Let me hear you say the word shalom. Now, shalom is often taught as um, simply peace or the absence of 
anguish, but that doesn't actually fully describe this complex, enigmatic Hebrew word. Because shalom doesn't just simply mean calm, it means fullness. It means wholeness. It means rhythm. Like, has anyone here ever gone to see a band and the drummer is just terrible? Right? Even if you're not a musician, everyone in the room is like, that guy needs to get off the stage yesterday. When the drummer is off, it butchers the song, but in God's garden, there's this ebb and flow, this, this fullness, this shalom. But then we come to chapter three, and part of me wishes we didn't have to go here. Because in three, we see that sin destroyed God's dream. Sin shatters shalom. The shalom that God created is broken through that first act of human selfishness, that first act of sin, eating the forbidden fruit. Now, now you may be asking, why why put the tree there in the first place? And there's been a lot of different theories as to why, but here's why I think. Because from the very beginning, God wants to communicate to all of us that obedience to him is where true life is found. And that still rings true today. Who here remembers like the first time you did something really bad as a kid? Can anyone remember? Okay, we're gonna go around the room, we're all gonna share. (laughs) I saw all the reluctant hands kind of creep up. I obviously have an endless list, but there are a couple that come to mind. One, I remember for an April Fool's joke, I switched all the salt shakers with sugar. And forgot to switch them back until my mom made a pot roast when we had company over. And it was a little sweeter than normal. (laughs) And about a week later, my mom caught me actually trading all of my nickels to my brother for his dimes because I had convinced him that nickels were worth more because they were bigger. (laughs) That's the kind of big brother I was, a bully of the mind. (laughs) And now those things may not be necessarily... Sin, but it certainly broke the shalom in our household. And I want to pause there for a second. Because when we say sin, a lot of us conjure up a lot of different ideas. And what we're not talking about is simply a list of do's or don'ts, some kind of moral behavior or moral tweaking. I think it's more critical to understand sin as selfishness. And selfishness stands in complete opposition to this triune community, this constant perichoresis of glorifying one another. One author puts it this way. He calls sin the culpable disturbance of shalom. So God hates sin not just because it violates his law, but because it shatters shalom. It breaks and disrupts the way things are supposed to be. And so I I would assert this, that sin started not with an action, but with a belief. A belief that disobedience is better than what God promises. That this thing will bring me greater joy. This action will bring me greater life than what God tells me is true. And Satan whispers into those first human's ears, can God be trusted? Is he really good? See, see, a lot of us start... We believe that obedience to God means God's trying to constrain us to keep us from really experiencing the fullness of life. But I believe God's shalom, God's dream for us is fullness beyond our wildest dreams. Now when we talk about sin, there's multiple kinds of sin. There's sin of commission, which is obvious, but there's also the sin of omission. Biblical author James says that if you know the good to do and don't do it, 
That's sin too. You may be sitting here this morning thinking, I, oh, I don't look at porn, I haven't robbed anybody, and I don't drink and drive, so I'm good. The Bible says, no, if there's good that you know you should do, shalom that you should be bringing, that's sin too. The story for us then is far more than merely the removal of sin. It's the restoration of shalom. And we don't have to look all that far to see that shalom has been fractured, do we? I don't think there's a person in this room that needs convincing this morning that things aren't as they should be. Which brings me to chapter 4. That God is at work in restoring his dream. In fact, God has been on a quest to restore this shalom since the beginning. How? By loving us in the most astounding way possible. Listen to what John says in 1 John 4. This is how God showed his love among us. Do you want to know how God loved us? Pay attention. Lean in. Come in close. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. God's plan to restore the world is what? It's Jesus. It's not a plan. It's not a strategy. It's not a brand or a logo. It's, it's a person. It's the word. It's Jesus. And through his death and resurrection, sin is conquered. Forgiveness is possible. We can have forgiveness This is why we're so passionate about helping people find their way back to God. Not just so it looks good on paper so that we can grow bigger churches. Because at the end of the day, the only way to bring shalom to our world, the only way to restore God's dream is to help people find their way back to him. The source of all love and all joy. And this week, in particular, We are in great need of some shalom, are we not? We're in need of not just quick fixes and platitudes, but real fullness in life. Which is why chapter 5 is so important. You and I have a job. We have a role in restoring God's dream. There's more to this story and it's still being written. It's the, it's the story of God's dream now but not yet fully. It's God's kingdom here but not quite yet. Everyone in this room, we have a role to play in bringing shalom to wherever we go. So I'll leave you with a couple of challenges. One, for you this morning, you might just define shalom. You, you might be here thinking, I, I haven't felt that kind of peace or wholeness Ever, I would implore you, do not leave this morning without filling out a connections card, coming and talking to a prayer team, connecting with someone at the welcome desk. You can find shalom today, and I would guess that for some of you, there's a craving, a gnawing that you've been wrestling with this entire time. God's invitation is come one, come all. Number two, once we find our way back to God, every one of us is called to help restore God's dream. By being a people who bring shalom. To bring shalom and wholeness wherever we go. John describes it this way. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us. And his love 
is made complete in us. Who doesn't want complete fullness of love this morning? With all the tears, with all the sorrow, with all the anguish, is there a more perfect time than today, than now, to be people, to be agents of grace and mercy and forgiveness and shalom into every crack and crevice of our lives? Could there be a better time? Every day we have the chance to bring God's love and shalom to the world. We bring shalom by feeding the hungry. By caring for the orphan. By standing up for the defenseless. By inviting the lonely. By standing against injustice. By fighting for equality. Can you imagine... Can you imagine what that world would look like? When every man, woman, child felt whole and complete. Every person felt a unique sense of oneness with every other person and with God. God's dream was fully restored. Can you picture, church, a world with no more violence, no more more hatred, no more hunger, no more greed, no more prejudice, but a world defined by love. It's God's dream. That's the perichoresis of the triune God. The story is still being written. May we be a community of love where every person finds shalom. May we be a community that is known for bringing shalom into the broken places of this world. Let's pray. God, our hearts are heavy fearful or torn and yet you are still on the throne and that is very very good news but we know that good news is really only good if it invades bad spaces so whether we're finding shalom for the first time today or we are driving a stake in the ground saying I am going to bring shalom, fullness, love and joy wherever I go may we be a people who help help people find their way back to God. We thank you and we love you. We pray these things in the name of Jesus.